Hello! Welcome to Learning by Literary Audiophiles, or Learning Be Lit AF. If you don't get that, don't worry, you are not the target audience here, because this is intended for students. And if you do get it, don't worry, I'm not trying to be funny with this podcast, so if I'm not, that means I've succeeded. My name is Theoden Humphrey, but I go by Dusty, because nothing makes sense. I am a high school language arts teacher with 20 years of experience. I've taught everything from remedial English to advanced placement classes, generally with success. I am now in the middle of a spring break that is now officially stretched to summer because of the COVID-19 outbreak, and we have moved into online and distance learning for the rest of this school year. I know there are millions of parents out there who have suddenly been thrown into homeschooling their kids, and millions of students who are suddenly on their own as they try to get through, as they try to get through all of this, and as you prepare for your next step. I want to help. So I figured I would try to make some individual lessons that would sound pretty much like the literature classes I've been teaching for two decades, so that people could maybe use this as a resource. This is a little different from how I normally read with my classes, because I don't have anyone here to discuss this with, to bounce ideas off of, to ask and answer questions, which generally guides the analysis of the piece. But I'm going to do my best. As a general disclaimer, let me state that literature never has only one interpretation, one right explanation. Reading is an ongoing conversation, and the meaning is negotiated between the parties, the writer and the reader. In this situation, then, I am the only reader, and so the interpretation here is going to be mine. But this is not the answer to this work. My hope is that by reading through this piece and talking through my understanding of it, it will help others to understand it and to find their own ideas about it. Hopefully we'll also give you some practice with the process of reading and thinking about literature, and that will help you with everything else in life, because literature is about life, about the human condition and the world we live in. Learning about literature is learning about the world, and about our place in it. So, let's get started. Today, as with every day really, we're doing rhetoric. American rhetoric. The most American rhetoric of them all, because today, the selection I'm going to be analyzing is the Declaration of Independence. I'm going to assume that you have heard of it, that you know at least some of the wording, and that you know the historical context and significance of the document. I'm going to be analyzing it in terms of the argument and the language, both of which are incredibly powerful, completely apart from what they meant for this country. I'm going to attribute this to Thomas Jefferson and talk about him as the author, though, of course, it was essentially a collaborative effort of all the signers, all the Constitutional Conventioners. Jefferson largely worded it, and that's going to be the focus. As always, I highly recommend you have a copy of this in front of you when we read, so you can take notes and write down your thoughts, so you can participate in the conversation. And if you don't have a copy, you'll just have to go steal it. That's right. You're going to steal the Declaration of Independence. Here we go. In Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, 
that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to effect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer, while evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance, unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained, and when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records, for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states, for that purpose obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. 
He has erected a multitude of new offices, and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has effected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. For quartering large bodies of armed troops among us. For protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states. For cutting off our trade with all parts of the world for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies. For taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages, and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us, and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They, too, have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. We must, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity 
which denounces our separation, and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is, is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Okay, let's talk about some vocabulary. There's a lot, I know. It's difficult to be sure whether a word needs to be defined, especially with an uncertain audience like I have here with this podcast, and the language in this piece is pretty much all archaic and therefore unfamiliar. Like in the second paragraph, Jefferson uses shewn instead of shown, but it's just an archaic spelling of shown, past tense of show. Um, so I'm guessing at the words that I think are generally not well known. If there are others that you don't quite understand or have no clue what they mean, then don't feel bad. I look words up all the time. I might have known them once, but I've forgotten them, or I'm not sure about all the nuances, or I just don't know what the word means. If you know the words I'm defining, sorry, go get a snack. This will only take a couple of minutes. Impel is to drive or force to do something. Endowed is granted equality or asset, the sense of um, inheritance. Unalienable means unable to be given away or taken away. To alienate something is to separate something. So unalienable means can't be separated, not able to be separated. Deriving means arise from or originate in, to gain something from a source. Prudence is acting with care and thought for the future. Transient, staying or existing only for a short time. Usurpations, to take power illegally or by force. Evinces is to be evidence of, to indicate. Despotism is the exercise of absolute power, especially in a cruel and oppressive way. Constrains means compels or forces someone to follow a particular course of action. Candid is truthful and straightforward, frank. Relinquish is to voluntarily cease to keep or claim, to give up. Inestimable means too great to calculate. Notice it has a sense of largeness. Formidable is inspiring fear or respect through being impressively large, powerful, intense, or capable. And that has an ominous sense. Because inestimable is used to describe the colonies, and formidable is used to describe the tyrant. Depository is a place where things are stored. Compliance is cooperating or accepting a wish or a command. Dissolution is the act of dissolving or eliminating. 
Annihilation is utter destruction or obliteration. Convulsions are sudden, violent, involuntary movements, also violent social or political upheavals. Tenure is a period of time in a position such as a political office. Multitude is a great number. Hither means here, and thither means there. Quartering is the provision of shelter and food, especially for military troops, like providing quarters. Arbitrary is based on random choice or personal whim rather than any reason or system. Legislatures are the government body that makes laws. Abdicated is renounced one's throne, also to fail to fulfill or undertake a responsibility or duty. Perfidy is deceitfulness, untrustworthiness. Insurrections are violent uprisings against an authority or government. Redress is remedy or set forth an undesirable or unfair situation to make something better, to make it right. Unwarrantable. A warrant in this sense is justification or something that necessitates an action or response. So if you had a warrant to search someone, it's a thing that shows you have justification for searching someone or their property. So something unwarranted is unjustified and unnecessary. Something unwarrantable is something that cannot be justified or shown to be necessary. Jurisdiction is the power to make legal judgments or the area where one has that power. Magnanimity is, is generosity. Disavow is to deny any responsibility or support for. Consanguinity is shared blood or heritage, family ties. Acquiesce is to accept something reluctantly but without protest. To denounce is to publicly declare to be wrong or evil. Rectitude is morally correct behavior or thinking, righteousness. And absolved means to set or declare someone free from blame, guilt, or responsibility. Alright, so... While this took a while to read and go over the vocabulary, the analysis will actually be shorter than you think, because the bulk of this does not require much analysis. It's evidence for the argument. The interesting thing about this piece is the argument itself. So what is an argument? What is persuasion? An argument is an attempt to convince an audience to accept a controversial proposition. It has to be controversial, because meaning that there is more than one reasonable side, because if you are arguing something that is unquestionably true, then it's not an argument, it's education. Your audience doesn't have to actively disagree with you at the outset. They just have to be unsure that you are right, because the other side of the controversy might be right too. To convince the audience, you need to use rhetoric. I've talked about rhetoric in a couple of other episodes, so I won't go too much in depth. But this piece is a perfect example of it, so let me go over the basics. Rhetoric is the use of language to accomplish a goal. And because persuasion is the most challenging and the most ambitious goal that can be achieved with language, it is the one we focus on most often with discussions of rhetoric. Uh, it's also true that most writing is made with several goals in mind, and so most writing has at least an element of persuasion. So, most writing can be looked at rhetorically. The elements of rhetoric, the things that need to be considered both when writing an effective argument and in analyzing an argument, are the audience, the speaker, the message, and the context. As all of those elements change, they change the argument. If I'm trying to argue that somebody should give me a donut, I'll use different arguments depending on who I'm speaking to, whether it's a friend or a coworker. 
or a complete stranger. My argument would also be different if I, as the speaker, were a different person. If I were an adorable puppy, I wouldn't need to use any arguments other than big puppy eyes and maybe a soft whine. My message is the strategy I use to get the donut. I might try to convince the audience that I deserve a donut. Or I might try to argue that giving me a donut would make them a better person. Or I could try to convince them not to eat the donut themselves, that it's unhealthy or it's not good, in which case they might abandon the donut, and then, even if I wasn't actually given the donut, I might be able to scavenge the abandoned donut. And so, my purpose would be achieved, I would have the donut. And then the context would have an effect in ways like, if it's morning, there's more likely to be plenty of donuts about. If we're inside a donut shop and there are many more donuts around, that will change my argument. All of these are rhetorical decisions. But of course, the rhetorical decisions are much harder to make and much harder to get right when what you want is not a donut, but a revolution that will create a new nation. Much tougher argument. Let's see how Thomas Jefferson went about it. Maybe he should have convinced King George to abandon the colonies, and then they could have just picked them up. Anyway, from the very beginning... Jefferson makes his strategy plain by being as plain and clear and forthright as he can be. He explains in the opening sentence who he is talking to and what he wants. It's an interesting choice because being completely open and clear places a lot of faith in your audience and in your argument. It shows you think that they are fair and reasonable and willing to be convinced and that your argument will definitely convince them. I don't mean to be too cynical, but this is often not true. Not because people are bad or anything. But just because if an argument is completely convincing and an audience is fair and open-minded, then they probably already agree with that convincing argument. Why wouldn't they? If giving me a donut would make you happier and you knew that, then why wouldn't you have already given me the donut? Sorry, I'll stop talking about donuts. I just... I like them a lot. Jefferson makes this choice. We'll have to figure out why. But you can see it from the opening sentence. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. So, it's clear. It's all right there. Exactly what they want to do. They want to explain, uh, declare the causes which impelled them to separation because they think it has become necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another. And they're doing this out of a decent respect to the opinions of mankind. That's their audience. Mankind. Pretty much everybody. It's a little more specific than that, which we'll talk about at the end of this, but that's basically who he's talking to, what he's saying, and why. It's all in the first sentence. That's being plain and clear. One little thing I want to mention is that the length and complexity of this sentence, it is 71 words long, this single sentence is the entire opening paragraph. It shows that Jefferson thinks his audience is educated and intelligent and willing to listen to his rhetoric. It's a compliment in some ways to argue with lofty formal language. It shows respect. You presume your audience can understand what you're saying. And you see where he refers to the decent respect to the opinions of mankind? He's making his language fit his opinion, fit his purpose. That's good rhetoric. Look at his word choice. His argument... Actually, no, let's start with the context. The Declaration of Independence, signed on July 4th, 1776, 
is the document that declared the 13 original colonies were from that day forward a free and independent nation, rather than under the control of England. There are many reasons why the American colonies took this action, several of which Jefferson will mention in this statement. The Declaration, of course, was not enough to win that argument. It took the Revolutionary War to finally separate the colonies from Great Britain and found the United States. The Declaration was where the leaders of the colonies set out their argument as to why they should be an independent nation. Their basic argument is that the American colonies have been forced by King George of England to take this step. They argued that King George was a tyrant, and they had no choice but to declare independence and then to declare war. This was controversial in a few ways. First, not everyone wanted the colonies to be an independent nation, including many people who lived in the colonies. Second, not everyone thought the colonies had the right to become an independent nation. And third, not everyone, in fact, probably most people, didn't think the colonies could win their independence from Great Britain, which was the strongest nation in the world at the time. Jefferson doesn't address all these controversies at once, at least not in writing. He addresses the two that create opportunities to persuade. First, that the colonies should secede, and second, that they have the right to secede. And he does this in just the right way. In this opening sentence, he presumes that the colonies have the right to secede. It's a given, an assumption. He says, when in the course of human events, which is history, it's time passing, it's just life, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another. Look how peaceful that sounds. Dissolving band. Nothing in there about war. No, sir. It just sounds like a natural process. Not that big a deal either. Just dissolving political bands. Not throwing two groups of people into utter chaos. Not leading to the deaths of tens of thousands. Just dissolving bands. Hey, it's necessary. And then he throws in a much more controversial point, that this group of people, the American colonists, should assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. He's saying that the nations of the world should accept the American nation as one of them, that France and Spain and Portugal and China and Egypt and Sweden and Russia and every other nation, including the big one, of course, Great Britain itself, should treat this still-not-independent set of colonies as their equal. Hey, they have to, because God said so. This is the station that the laws of nature and the laws and of nature's God entitle these people to have. Whoa, that's bold. Imagine, last time I'll use the donut analogy, I swear. Imagine if I said, that donut is mine because the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle me to it. Would you give me the donut? I mean, probably not. But you would probably listen to my argument as to why I am entitled to the donut in your hand by the laws of God. That's why Jefferson starts this way. He's trying to capture the attention of his audience. He's trying to get them to listen to his argument. And one way to do that is to say something challenging and to say it with absolute confidence. In an argument, you are trying to convince someone to accept your side as the right side. And that is easier for them to do if you sound like you are 100% sure that your side is the right side. If even you have doubt, it's much harder for the audience to overcome their doubts. Now, he makes sure not to sound too arrogant, saying that this declaration comes from a decent respect to the opinions of mankind. But he says that their goal here is not to convince the audience, but rather it is to declare the causes which impel them to the separation. 
calling them causes rather than like reasons or even problems makes it seem like this is as inevitable as gravity. Reasons and problems can be argued over, but causes just lead to effects, no matter how you feel about it. Same with the word impel. It's force. This isn't a matter of choice. The colonies have to do this. Notice he doesn't try to pose this as an argument at this point. They don't need to explain or justify their choice. They simply have to declare it out of respect. Notice as a brief aside that Jefferson alternates between calling this new country colonies and states. He also continuously, especially throughout the list of grievances, uses our and us as separate from he and them. I'm going to use colonies just to keep it simple, and because at the time of this writing, that's what they were still. So then in the next paragraph, Jefferson explains why the colonies have to do this. And what's great about this is Jefferson takes it all the way down to the most basic, simplest assumptions, the simplest truths, truths that are self-evident. Evidence is proof that something is true, but if the thing is self-evident, then it doesn't need proof. It proves itself. It's just true. And by looking at it, you know it. Basic truths. We have night and day, and night is dark, and day is light. I don't need to prove it. I just need to point to it, and we'll all agree because it is self-evident. Now he does this present. Now he does present his first potential doubt because he says we hold these truths to be self-evident, and if we hold them, then we think they are, but we might be wrong. But also, he calls them truths, so maybe he's not allowing too much doubt. Here's his first truth: that all men are created equal. Now, in some ways, this is challenging, this is controversial, because the people in power at this time are generally royal people, and they just might think that they were born better than the people they rule. But that tells us that Jefferson is not really trying to convince them, at least not in this part of the argument. He's speaking to the other people, who probably like very much that this starts with the self-evident truth that the common people are equal to the noble people. There's also an argument here from religion. Remember, he mentioned God in the first paragraph, and is about to mention him again in a sec, because he says, created, not born. And so that makes people think of their creator. And the Bible is very clear that all humans are God's children, and God loves all of us equally. Therefore, we are all created equal. Okay, and here's where it gets really cool. Because if we accept that first self-evident proposition, then this next one follows logically from it. If all men are created equal, and maybe here I should mention the particular term men, Jefferson means all humans, not just male humans. Though if pressed, he probably would not think that women were all equal to men in every particular. Created equal, as in equal in their essential humanity? Sure, yes. Equally capable of voting and being president? Probably not. Also, Jefferson owned quite a number of slaves, so this whole argument is somewhat tainted. But here's one of the wonderful things about argument. Even a jerk can make a good point. It may be less convincing coming from a hypocrite, but it will still be true. Even a racist slave owner can present what is, what we can clearly say in our present world from our perspective, a self-evident truth. All people, all humans, are created equal. That true argument messes with Jefferson's life, or it should have messed with his life and his own self-perception, but his life doesn't mess with that argument. So, if all men, all humans, are created equal, then it follows 
naturally, logically, that we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. Why? Because that's what it means to say that all of us are created equal. It means we all have the same rights. Those rights are unalienable, can't be separated from us, because they are inherent in the basic fact of our humanity, of our creation, in Jefferson's term. If we are created as humans, and all humans are created equal, then all humans have the same rights. It follows. And if we were to start naming the rights that come with being born or created human, among them would surely be the right to life, the right to liberty, and the right to the pursuit of happiness. Why? Because if we don't have those rights, then we can't be, on the most basic level, humans. If we are not alive, we cannot continue being human. If we do not have liberty, we do not get to express the most essential fact of our humanity, reason, the ability to think and make decisions for ourselves, and then act on the decisions we make. That's liberty. The third one, the pursuit of happiness, is a little different because these first two come right from the writings of one of the most influential philosophers of this time, or, well, the century before, who had a tremendous impact on all the founding fathers and the government they created, John Locke. Locke is the one who codified all of this, but Locke's third basic right is the right to property, meaning the right to own the product of one's labor. He had life, liberty, and the right to property. Because <clears throat> one of the other essential human actions is to produce, to act and work in some manner that we choose. And if we don't own what we produce, then we didn't own the hours spent producing. And if we don't own our own hours, then we don't own our lives. And we don't have that first right. And we're not human, therefore. Locke said it better than me. It's not entirely clear why Jefferson used this phrase. It's an interesting discussion all by itself. But I think we, we can take it here to represent something similar to liberty, that an individual person's happiness is self-determined. You decide for yourself what your happiness is. And pursuit of it represents your most fundamental desires. And therefore, it is a fundamental right that comes with being human, that right to decide what happiness means and then to try to achieve it. Think of it this way. If you couldn't do that, what kind of life would be left to you? That's the end of the sentence, to show that we're making a jump. Uh, we're going to a new thought. But Jefferson includes a dash to show that the first thought continues. That this new thought is not, is, sorry, that's not really a new thought, because now we're just moving to governments. The implication here is that governments' rights are related to human rights, because governments are, to borrow a phrase from a later president, Abraham Lincoln, of the people, by the people, for the people. Essentially human things. We're still seeing this as a self-evident truth, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted. That's what governments are for, to protect the rights of the people. Though I like that he says, secure these rights. It implies a broader scope of activities for governments than just protection, which is only reaction against threats, where securing something can also mean going out and getting it. And these governments derive their powers from the consent of the governed. That's where Jefferson really starts getting challenging. Though, again, he's not the first to think of this. He's arguing here against what is called the divine right of kings, that a monarch is placed on a throne to rule every person in their country by God. Here, Jefferson argues that it's not God who makes kings, who gives governments their power. It is the people, the citizens, the governed. That's who decides. It makes sense if you accept all of his self-evident truth leading up to this, because the divine right of kings implies an inherent value in a ruler chosen by God that is greater than the people who were not chosen by God. 
So if all people are created equal, then you can't have a single person who is God's one choice to rule over all the rest. If true, that person would have more rights than other people, from the moment of his or her creation, as a future king or queen. Whereas, if all people are created equal, both the governors and the governed, then the only reason the governor can tell the governed what to do is because the governed choose to obey. Notice the reversal here. The power, the choice, is the common people's to make. The government must essentially obey the will of the people, or else the people will remove their consent to be governed, and the government will no longer be able to govern to tell people what to do. As a teacher, I can completely confirm this. My students do what I tell them because they choose to do it. And I know that because some students have chosen not to listen, have not consented to be governed, and there was quite literally nothing I could do about it. Not and still be just. And notice that, that one word that opens up the alternative. A government that derives its power, that keeps control over the people, and makes them obey without their consent, through the use of force. That does give one human power over another, but it is not just. That's the argument. And again, it follows from the self-evident truths. If all humans have the right to life and liberty, then the threat of violence is a threat to remove one of those rights, and those rights are unalienable. So no use of force to remove those rights from people can ever be just. Next, if governments have power because the people choose to allow them to have power, then it follows that the, that the people can choose to stop giving government A power and can choose instead to give power to government B. And that means that we can alter or abolish government. We choose where we give our consent. Now, we don't necessarily have the right to do that just because we feel like it, because government B has better hair and a cooler catchphrase. He doesn't say we can't choose to change governments for reasons like that, but the logical next step from the last two steps, that governments have power from the consent of the governed, and that governments exist to secure rights for citizens, the logical next step is that the people can change government when government fails in its essential task, and the people can then form a new government that will carry out that essential task to secure the rights for the citizens. It makes sense, but it is deeply challenging to the status quo. Because kings have control not because they do their job, but because they were born in a line from the last king. How well they do their job is irrelevant. The job is theirs for life. But again, you only have that if all humans are not created equal. And then someone can be chosen by God and have his rights to be the ruler given to him by God, granted by God, rather than by the consent of the governed. So if we accept the first self-evident truth then this is the only thing that makes sense. Look at that argument. It's two sentences. And it's only two sentences because he makes that one jump from individuals to governments. But the logic is flawless. If you accept the first statement, then the rest has to follow from that. Has to. And so here we are. The colonies have the right to separate from Great Britain and become an independent nation because all humans have that right if their government has failed to secure the rights of the citizens. So, that now becomes the argument. Jefferson does spend a little more time arguing not just that the colonies have the right to form a new government, but that it's a good idea. He explains that people do not just jump up and change governments for no reason. What I was saying about liking government bees, hair, and catchphrase more. He says, people tend to suffer while evils are sufferable. 
This does seem to be true, and it implies that when people actually do want to change their government, the evils are no longer sufferable. They have no choice. They can't hold out any longer. And the rest of the document is Jefferson trying to show evidence that the evils the colonies are living with under King George of Great Britain are no longer sufferable. Now, most of this you can see on your own what Jefferson is doing. He stops using the respectful, calm language and starts using more charged, aggressive words like absolute tyranny and despotism, utterly neglected. He says, he has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. Again, as I said before, he uses our to describe everything in the colonies, which is especially interesting from the description, with the description of government. Apart from clearly distinguishing the colonies from Great Britain as a whole, he also seems to be saying that the colonies already have all the government they want or need, when he talks about our legislatures and our judges and judiciaries. All they need now is for King George to get out of the way and let the legislatures and judiciaries do their proper tasks without his interference. It makes them seem closer to a country than a colony, because they already have the government without King George. My favorite point in here is this one philosophical comment Jefferson makes about the function of legislatures, when he says, He has refused for a long time, after such dissolutions, that's dissolving the legislative bodies, to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise. The state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions from within. This fits in with his argument that government arises naturally out of the existence of humans with rights in a society. The fact of rules within society, their creation, their codification, their enforcement, it doesn't come from the government. It comes from the people, from the existence of people in society and the existence of those people's rights. Wipe out the government and you'd still have rules, you'd still have laws. They just get done a different way, but they would still get done. Like he says, the legislative powers return to the people at large for their exercise. Um, anyway, the language and the offenses get worse as the list goes on. Jefferson is trying to show how the offenses, the failures of King George's government have grown more serious, have become insufferable. All of the statements that can show George's, King George's will, he chooses each of these things to do. He refuses, he forbids, he endeavors. He's the one doing these things. I particularly like the argument that the king has abandoned his responsibilities to the colonies and therefore has put them out of his control, separate from his sovereignty. It's a nice point, showing again that, as Jefferson sees it, government works for the people, not the other way around. The one argument I don't like is the last one in his list when he talks about the savage Native Americans and says that their system of warfare is well known to be all women, all children, all people without quarter or mercy. Um, this is coming straight out of what in the United States is called the French and Indian War when the British and the British colonists fought against the French and Native Americans who fought with the French because the Native Americans were used by the French essentially as guerrilla warfare, as soldiers, uh, sorry, as, as irregular soldiers because they didn't really fit in with the French battle line strategies. So they were sent specifically to do as much, to commit as many savageries, as many savage attacks as they possibly could. And they were... Um, he does, Jefferson doesn't talk about here, of course, but they were fighting back for 150 years of savageries that the English and uh, European colonists had committed against them and their people. So there's a whole lot more context here that Jefferson, of course, doesn't go into. All that really shows us, it shows us two things. First of all, is that Jefferson was clearly a racist, although we already knew that. And then secondly, it shows that 
societies like Native Americans, indigenous societies, were not Jefferson's audience. He doesn't care about what they think. They're not the people he's trying to convince. He cares about the people that see those people as brutal savages, which is basically Europeans and especially the colonists who were the victims of many of these attacks during the French and Indian Wars, and then also just sort of on the colonial frontiers for, you know, the same 150 years that they've been doing terrible things to the Native Americans. Um, And that's part of his audience, too. So he uses um, offensive language because the offensive language will speak to the biases of his audience. Right. And, of course, the big theme in this list of grievances is, look at how long that list is. My God, how could anyone argue against a list that long? You could spend days disproving the individual claims and still have dozens left. That's the point. The amount of evidence is overwhelming. And it's interesting because all of it, every item on this very long list, carefully constructed to be as long as possible, each item in its own sentence, each sentence in its own paragraph, even a list of instances has been still broken apart into separate line items, all to make it seem as overwhelming as possible. Every item is based on those same initial self-evident truths. Because if you accept that the king of Great Britain can do as he pleases with his subjects, that being the basic belief of the divine right of kings, then the things that are on the list are not actually offenses, not usurpations. That's a really effective word, by the way, because it's used to describe someone stealing a king's power and position, usurp. But here Jefferson uses it to describe a king stealing the people's power and position. Anyway, but this list would not be usurpations. They're just things a king might do to his subjects. The part about plundering and ravaging and burning, maybe not so much. But everything about deciding who the judges will be and how much they'll be paid. Or blocking legislative bodies from meeting. Or quartering soldiers in the colonists' houses and imposing taxes on the colonists. All of these are within the king's power and are mostly not even shocking. Again, this tells us who Jefferson's audience is. And it isn't King George. So, Jefferson gets to the end of his list, and then he makes a couple of last points. One, he says that the colonists have tried to go through the regular channels, that they have petitioned for redress, but have gotten nowhere with it. I like that he calls George a prince, like he's demoting him. I suspect he's also making a reference to the book The Prince by Niccolò Machiavelli, which, without diving into that complicated work, gives directions on how to be a successful tyrant, which is what Jefferson is calling George. And two, they have tried to appeal to the British people directly, but they haven't been willing to help either. This is done to show that the usual methods are not effective, and it calls for unusual methods for extreme measures, for a declaration of independence, and eventually, a war. It also tells us something about who Jefferson's audience is. The audience is regular people who normally wouldn't want to rock the boat, the people that he says would suffer ills as long as they have been sufferable. Because if he's talking to other citizens, and they say, well, why didn't you talk to the king, or the legislature, or whatever, why don't you go through the channels and see if you could get these things changed? Like, if you didn't like the taxes, why didn't you object to the taxes? It's kind of the argument like, why don't you vote the other way if you don't like the person in power? And Jefferson's argument is, we did. We went through the channels, we petitioned for redress of all our grievances, it didn't work, it didn't happen. And then, this, so that stands then as a warning to common people that this could happen to your government if your government becomes tyrannical. That your normal path, your normal process will not work. 
And then it's also a point when he says, as colonists, we talked to the people of Great Britain, not just to the king, to the people themselves, and they refused to help us. So this is his audience, is people that would think that was the right thing to do, talk to the people. Okay, this leads to his conclusion, which starts with, we, therefore, therefore, as the result of these other points that I have raised, as an effect of these causes, nothing that we chose, something inevitable, because King George is a tyrant, and with authority granted us by the people, consent of the governed, we declare our independence, and we believe that God is on our side, because we are righteous. To that end, we pledge everything we've got, and it's nice that we pledge it to each other. Not to God, not to our king, not even to our country, to each other. There it is. It's a perfect argument. It is irrefutable, impossible to rebut if you accept the initial premise. And as we all know, it worked. Well, after they won the war. That's Jefferson's purpose, by the way. Look at what he's arguing. He's not talking to the king of England. He's not trying to convince George to let them go. He's talking because he insults him, so you can tell. He's talking to the nations and people of the world. He's not arguing to convince people that the divinely chosen king needs to be overthrown. He's arguing that free people, based on the fact that all are born equal, have the right to form their own new government should their current government become tyrannical. See, this leaves room for people who want to keep their monarchs. Even the British. If the British want to keep their monarch, if they love King George, and to them, their government has performed the task that a government has, is supposed to perform, then he's not saying that that government needs to be torn down. He's not arguing against monarchy in general. So he's allowing people who want to be loyal to monarchs to agree with his argument, but still love their own government. He's explaining the reasoning behind that, that people can choose to form their own government if their current government becomes tyrannical. He gives a ton of evidence that the colonists' current situation applies to the principle of government obeying the people's needs and securing their rights, and that there's a problem there. He's arguing to compliment his audience, but he also makes his points as clear and logical and unequivocal as possible. When he does use emotional language, he attacks the king, insulting his abuses of power and implying that the king's power is unjust and undeserved. Jefferson is talking to the common people of the world in two groups. So this declaration was copied several times and sent on two journeys. One set of copies went to the governments of the major countries of the world, and the other were sent around the American colonies to be read in the town square. So Jefferson here has two audiences, and he is making two arguments. To the people of the United States-to-be, he is explaining why they have the right and why it is right for them to declare independence and change their government. That's why the argument itself is so clearly put, so logical, and has so very much evidence. Evidence that uses emotional language to paint King George as a monster. And that's why he keeps saying us and our, and he ends with, that's why he pledged to each other. He's speaking to the other colonists and saying, we pledge to you, and you should return that pledge to us to help with this. Jefferson's second audience is the governments of other countries, and there. Honestly, his argument's a little shakier, because if the rulers of France and Spain and Belgium and the Netherlands or whatever accept the argument here, that means they rule at the sufferance of their people. And their people can, should the rulers ever displease them, remove those rulers and replace them with a new government. It is fascinating to think that the colonial argument about the rights of free people actually won over some noble allies, like the Marquis de Lafayette. So, I think his argument, Jefferson's argument with the nobles, with the rulers, is twofold. First, 
If the colonies can win their war, then the new nation of America will be a useful ally. This is why he talks about all the things the new nation wants to do, and he includes war and peace, contract alliances, and establish commerce. Because the colonies were a huge piggy bank for Great Britain. They were a huge source of wealth. Perhaps, those rulers might reason, they should work with the colonies and plant some seeds of new friendship. Second, this enormous list of crimes committed by King George, along with the explanation in the beginning, emphasized at the end, as to how people will prefer to suffer some ills rather than go through the terrible turmoil of creating an entirely new government, serves as like a barometer, a thermometer for the rulers. It tells them how very far they'd have to go before they would have a revolt on their hands along the same lines as the American Revolution. I think the extent of Jefferson's argument is in some way comforting to the rulers of other nations. They could all think, well, I don't give my people everything they want, but I'm not as bad as that guy. Also, if they work with America, this country that is now supporting and representing the rights of free individual citizens, that might please the citizens of these countries, show that the rulers of these countries, these monarchs, are not unreasonable absolute tyrants. They believe, even if they don't actually personally believe, it'll give the appearance of them believing that governments rule the consent of the governed. So that will be flattering in some way to their people, and it'll keep them happy. Uh, It's interesting to think that the first argument, that the major powers should help the colonies fight Britain, only worked on one nation, France, who then acted as allies and helped the colonies win the American Revolution. And it's fascinating to think that this second argument about how far a ruler can go before he should pull back and obey some of the wishes of his people was ignored by one nation, France. We're only a decade or so after this argument was made, the king and queen were removed as rulers of the people, by the people, for the people, who cut off their heads. Now that is a good argument. That will do it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and if you have any questions, concerns, or issues you'd like to raise, or just anything you'd like to say to me, please go to my website, www.theodenhumphrey.com, and leave me a message through the contact page. Be well.